If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the History Extra podcast, brought to you by the team behind BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Matt Elton. Today's podcast guest is the archaeologist and TV presenter Neil Oliver. Neil joined Ellie Cawthorn to discuss his latest book, Wisdom of the Ancients, Life Lessons from the Distant Past, which looks to our ancient ancestors for inspiration on how to live better lives today. In the introduction to the book, which I'm assuming was written last year, but actually feels more timely now than ever with everything that's happened over the last six months, you speak about being in search of reassurance and a source of optimism. Why do you think that our ancient ancestors are the place to turn for that? I think I am a, I'm an archaeologist by, by training, I suppose, uh, and uh, I would call myself an amateur historian, but I read widely of history. I think partly because I'm not a specialist, you know, so I'm not limited to, to one period. I, I read across everything you know, thousands of years worth of history. And I think if you do that, you uh, you quite quickly come to the realisation that what's happening now has happened before in cycles. It's like there's a slowly turning wheel of time and the human race has been through the same sort of problems again and again and again. You know, human populations have been invaded by strangers or they in turn have invaded the neighbours. They've had wars, they've had outbreaks of pestilence and plague, uh, you know, they've had tyrannies, they've had uh, benign kingships, they've had democracies. The whole thing just keeps on coming around and around and around. If you don't pay attention to history, it can be even more stressful because you might think that what's happening to us in the 21st century is unique and especially bad. If you look back at history, you see that it's happened to people before us many, many, many times. And I feel that if you look back at other times and see how people coped with situations, there's just a reassurance to be had from knowing there is nothing new. Our species has been dealing with the same big challenges again and again and again. And here we are, and it's our turn. Um, You cite a quote from Edward Osborne Wilson about having 
Paleolithic emotions, but godlike technology. Why did that resonate with you particularly? Because I think, because I, I have a background as an archaeologist, we became the species that we are. Uh, maybe 200,000 years ago, Homo sapiens is about 200,000 years old. The number keeps on changing. But people uh, 100,000 years ago, let's say, to pick a number out of the sky, had exactly the same cognitive abilities as us. The same brain, the same emotions, uh, the same aspirations, ambitions, care for family, care for themselves, worries and anxieties, predilections towards depression and stress and all the rest of it. We're exactly the same animals that we were in those unimaginably different circumstances. What has happened, what is happening with the advent of modern technology is that our machines are getting incredibly smart. We're making our technology and the machinery around us incredibly clever. I don't think it's on a par with human intelligence. I think human intelligence is of a, of a specific sort, but we are surrounding ourselves with machines and we're increasingly existing to serve the machines rather than the machines existing to serve us. Uh, and I think you're expecting uh, people who are essentially the same as those who lived a hunter-gatherer existence 100,000 years ago to cope with the, the, the human reality that we have now. And it's self-evident that people are struggling with it. There are more people alive at the moment than have ever been alive at the same moment, 7 billion plus. Uh, we have conquered so many diseases. We have lifted billions of people out of poverty. Uh, here in much of Western Europe, we have lived in what is, by comparison to others, a very tolerant and peaceful society. And yet even given all of those incredible gifts, so many people, it seems to me, are, are depressed are on antidepressants and beta blockers. Uh, they're finding it hard to cope with their daily reality. And I think it's because we're not giving ourselves a breath. We're not pulling back and drawing a breath and accepting that we are still what we were 100,000 years ago when our ancestors you know, began spreading from the, uh, around the equator into the, into the Northern Hemisphere. We're the same people. And we ask an awful lot of ourselves to cope with social media and mobile phones and emails and you know and and jet planes and and all the rest of it and the constant deluge of data coming in from every media you can imagine and people aren't happy there's more unhappiness than there's ever been for for so many people in such good conditions and i think there's a there's a panacea for that there's a there's almost a therapy you can put yourself through by paying attention to the past well, to pick up on that point, what kind of lessons do you think that we can take from the past? I think it's simple things. It's things like I tell the story of um, the first, the, old, the, the oldest house uh, at mm -hmm. Olduvai. Uh, and, and, and in there as well as the story of the, the Lytoli footprints. It's this idea that we have known, we knew millions of years ago, the importance of having a family home, having a base where some people could remain behind to look after the children and, and to do certain things, while other people went out and maybe collected food or hunted and, and didn't eat it where they found it, but brought it back to share it at the home base. That's a fundamental realisation that our species came to, not thousands of years ago, not hundreds of thousands of years ago, but millions of years ago. And so, so simple things like the idea that, that we've known about the importance of the family for a very, very long time. It's intrinsic. It's innate in what it is to be human 
and alive. And when we live in these confusing, complicated lives in this complicated world, just to be reminded that the importance of your family is and has to be and always has been central to a person's sanity. It's a great source of peaceful sanity in amongst the whirling maelstrom of everything else that's going on around it, you know, to focus on on the family. Another thing, we go, we walk our dog just on a golf course just over there. We walk, we walk round and round a golf course and there's a, there's a piece of exposed bedrock. I mean, no bigger than a dustbin lid. Uh, and it's of the same uh, quartz dolerite that the, that the rock of Stirling Castle it sits upon. You know, it's a, it's a plug of volcanic rock. And this, this, this little bit of exposed bedrock is some of the same stuff. Uh, and it's, it's 300 million years old, let's say. But etched into it are uh, cup and ring marks made by Neolithic farmers, maybe four, 5,000 years ago. We know that the farmers all over Britain, all over Europe, were in the habit of making these marks. It's like a, a, a little dish-shaped depression picked out and then a circle around that and then another circle around it. So it's like a, you know, like a spiral or, or a set of circles, one within the other. And I take comfort from knowing that those marks have been there through all the history we care about. All the, the rise and fall of empires, world wars, the, the comings and goings of kingdoms, all of that time, those four, three or four little circles have been etched into that rock. And if you go to somewhere like Callanish, Callanish, which is one of the, the many stone circles in Scotland or in the British Isles, mm -hmm. uh, the, the stone is Lewisian nice. It's a kind of rock. It's, it's some of the oldest rock of planet Earth. It's been, it was created something like three billion years ago. Now, the planet's only four and a half billion years old. So without a shadow of a doubt, if you go to Callanish and touch the stones, you will never in your life touch anything older. You will never in your life touch anything, anything like as old as the rock of Callanish. And then 5,000 years ago, some of those farmers raised up some of those blocks of stone and made this, this bizarre monument that, that people have been fascinated by for 5,000 years. And it's made of the stuff of the earth. And that stuff, if you stand beside it, touch it, it, it I take comfort from being reminded that I am a, an infinitesimal speck in the, in the continuum of time. That rock has been there for billions of years. And that thing that I walk past with my dog, that rock is 300 million years old. And it, puts, it helps me to put my everyday cares and concerns into a context. Um, a sense I got from your book, much more than any other archaeological book I've read, it's quite emotional. Um, how can you reconstruct emotion from archaeological evidence? It's such a that's a perfect question for me. Um, you'll have read the the story of the Vedbeck mother and baby. Now mm. I've known about that. I, I sat through a lecture about the about the Vedbeck mother and baby thirty years ago, and I was moved by it at the time because it, when you look at that that. Funeral. Now that funeral, that 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 mother and baby were were laid down into the ground. It's very hard to tell. Six, seven thousand years. Who knows? It's thousands of years ago, and you can tell because 
the, the, the woman was buried with a necklace made of all the, the red deer teeth that had been collected by a hunter and assembled into a necklace that went into the ground with her. And it seems almost certain that the mother and baby died together in childbirth and they were buried together. And the baby was laid on a swan's wing. Now, there was no practical necessity to lay the baby on a swan's wing. That's surely someone that either, as I say in the story, was either imagining that perhaps by involving the spirit of a swan, uh, it, it, would, it, would in, it would harness the activity of the migratory birds, that the soul of the, of the baby, the soul of the mother and baby, they might come back in the same way that the swans would come back every year. Or at the very least, it was somebody that just couldn't bear the thought of putting a, an infant's body onto the cold ground and put something soft and comforting down. So it means that you can find grief archaeologically. You can find emotion along with the bones uh, and, and other bits and pieces of, of stone or whatever are, are in the grave and the, and the red deer teeth. Without a shadow of a doubt, there's sadness buried alongside them. And to me, that after thousands of years of, of lying there forgotten in the ground, the archaeologists could come along in the 1980s and open that grave and find grief and ephemeral human emotion there in the ground made evident by the way in which the mourning people treated those bodies, I find that profoundly affecting, that the emotion remains to be found. And that's also not the only burial site that you look at. Um, you look at some in Shanada that can tell us about other emotions that are not necessarily only grief or not only about death. Yes, well, in the case of, that's Neanderthals. So that's a separate species. Once upon a time, maybe as recently as 25,000 years ago, there was more than one kind of humankind on the planet, which in itself is an amazing thought. There's a possibility that maybe maybe 100,000 years ago, we might have shared the planet with as many as a dozen. Imagine that. We're the only humans, Homo sapiens, we're the only ones left now. But there was a time in the past when there might have been as many as a dozen variations on what it is to be human, all coexisting on the planet. Now, the Neanderthals, uh, as a a people, they they emerge maybe half a million years ago, 400,000 years ago, and then they become extinct by about 25, 30,000 years ago. It's hard to be precise. And at Shandadar, you've got got evidence of uh, Neanderthal burial. Now, in our conceit as Homo sapiens, which is wise man, wise people, we imagined for the longest time that we were the only we were the only humans that did things like bury our dead. You know, this was a terrible vanity that we had. Uh, but of course, it turns out that Neanderthals were doing it too. In the case of the individual Nandi, as he was nicknamed by the archaeologists, uh, who had obviously been born with a with a disabled arm, maybe maybe unformed, and at some point it was it was amputated around the elbow. Uh, and he was also blind in one eye. Um, and so it, it, he would have been, you might say, a bit of a burden on the rest of the tribe. He couldn't hunt, but he still required food. Um, and you might think that, you know, a, 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 a savage, brutal version of humankind would have, would have done away with them as just an encumbrance that they couldn't be bothered with. But the evidence is that he lived to be old by the standards of the day, possibly into his 40s, but he had arthritis his teeth were all worn down from, you know, from, from his diet. And when he died, they buried him in the cave. 
They kept them close by. Now, it's, it's hard to be precise about these things. We don't live inside those people's minds. We don't know exactly what they were doing. But looking at it objectively, it appears that he was looked after and valued. And when he died, he was treated with great respect. There's another burial in, in the same cave that seems to be of a man who was, when he died, he was his grave was filled with fresh cut flowers. You know, that rather than just filling soil upon him, they heaped in flowers that they had gathered from the surrounding fields and hills. So there seems to be a great expression of sophisticated thinking. And so there are there are reminders in, in terms of this, that's a long-winded answer to your question, but it's um, that, that love itself isn't ours. We didn't invent loving our people, our, our family and our friends. It's 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 beyond us. It transcends the species because we seem to find it in the Neanderthals who are another species of humankind altogether. I was just going to say, I think that's an interesting perspective because so often if we think about the ancient past and ancient history, the narrative is of battle and horrible lives and a fight for survival. We don't see this side of it or we don't discuss it. There's no getting away from it. I mean, one of the one of the things that's definitely true, there's a paradox or it's ironic at the moment, is that more people are having a better chance of a life just now than they never have had. Because the reality, you're quite right though, for most people, for most of the time, life was hard. And, and the realities were pain without pain relief, disease without treatment, infant mortality, and no way of control or, or no way of controlling childbirth except by infant mortality. They must have been snuffing out the lives of newborns because they couldn't be on the move with, you know, with endless amounts of, of toddlers and babies. The brutal cruel, harsh realities of life for 99% of people, for 99% of the time, must not be overlooked. But what's what's also instructive is that in those circumstances, unimaginably harder than ours, those people still found space for love, for joy, for expressions of grief, for treating the dead with great respect, for, for expending all kinds of energy and imagination, creating things like the standing stones and, and, other, and other creations. And we have to ask ourselves, with all that we've got, why can't we be happier? We have a better chance of living a full life, having children, uh, you know, experiencing so much pleasure. And it's instructive to look back and see that people who had to live in the presence of terrifying predators, with limited resources, with none of the the technology that we take for granted, yet still they rose above their circumstances and did the most astonishing things and expressed humanity in those most challenging circumstances. And we should, you know, because if so, we can't be happy, who can? Still to come on the History Extra podcast. In the past, when circumstances were so difficult and when lives were pain-ridden, threatened by war and disease and people were burying their children all around them, they still found it in their hearts to make expressions that have haunted our imaginations for thousands of years. So in your interpretation there, am I right in saying that it's about stripping things back a bit? And going back to basics. Some of it, it's about, it's about, a pre, it's simple things. It's about drawing a breath and appreciating the world around us, being amazed by what is out there. 
It's about appreciating family. It's about appreciating home. You know, there's the story of the the, the Egyptians in there. And the Egyptians, the Egyptian civilization lasted for more than two thousand years, three thousand years. But in the end, it it became it was left behind, and it became a bit of a backwater because ultimately the the Egyptians had gone down a path where they were they were they were setting life aside and preparing always for death. And there's a there's a sort of terminal sterility in that in being preoccupied all the time with the next life and not paying enough attention to this. And and it was for that reason that the Egyptian civilization, for all its wonder and for all that it achieved, it was left behind like a rock pool. And people went on because the better path is to prepare, is to is to is to deal with life, is to prepare with life now. You know, and we you know difference maybe the uh, in the Egyptians set up, the, the people there had found agricultural surplus. Uh, they could feed themselves. They had they had taken care of some of the daily necessities, and they became preoccupied with with other things. And, as, and in the in the end, they became preoccupied with death and preparing for their own deaths and their own afterlives. But in other places, like here, for example, in you know Western Europe, where the where the living was 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 harder in specific ways, it made people pay attention to the here and now. And it, and, it, and it set a course for, well, all the things that have happened in our civilization and why our civilization is, you know, has been preeminent in the modern era. Enlightenment, technology, industrial revolution, all those things were made possible by us focusing on the here and now and and, and not just focusing on, on death in the way that the Egyptians did. So there are, there are certain, uh, you know, fundamental things. You spoke earlier about the importance of the home and the area that you live in is it's clearly really important to you and you write quite evocatively about it. Why is it such a special area to you? I live in Stirling. I mean, there's a window that's, you know, the light's coming in from the window there and just through the trees, if the trees weren't so fully in leaf, I would be able to see the edge of Stirling Castle. Uh, for someone like me, I'm interested in history. Stirling is rich in history. There's been a castle there for a thousand years uh, and it, as previously mentioned, it sits on a rock that's 300 million years old. Uh, a great deal of Scottish history has happened in Stirling. For the longest time through history, uh, the, the only, there was only a nine mile wide strip of dry land, solid, hard footing that you could move large bodies of men and animals through. On either side out towards the coasts, it was morass and marsh and, and, and hard going. So there was just this narrow strip dominated by the castle. So anyone with an army moving north, maybe to conquer Scotland or traveling south to invade England, had to come this way. And that's why so many battles were fought in this particular vicinity, like Bannockburn, uh, like uh, William Wallace's battle at Stirling Bridge, uh, like Sheriff Muir during the Jacobite rebellions, Sochiburn during which King James III was murdered possibly by his own son, King James IV. Stirling is a corruption of a Gallic word that means the place of strife because there was always so much violence around here. Stirling Castle is known affectionately as the silver brooch that hitches the highlands to the lowlands. It's a central point. It's a, it's a nexus of Scottish and therefore British history. And for someone like me to live here is great because I'm, I'm surrounded by the subject that I'm fascinated by. And there is much, much older history here as well. There is archaeology here. There's evidence of, of human population running back for thousands of years. And I find that 
especially during lockdown, where we haven't been able to travel, I find that just going out into the area around my house is enough. You could spend lifetimes just trying to understand what's here. We have the, the, the technology and the facility to, to look everywhere in the world from our laptops and computers or to travel there on the, you know, on the aircraft that we have. There's a, there is a tendency to overlook what's right here at home. You know, it's like Dorothy in Wizard of Oz. You know, it's only when she comes back to, to her farm in Kansas after all her adventures that she properly appreciates the people that are there and the life that she had. And lockdown has intensified that for me in some ways. You know, I've been made to just pay attention to this much more self-contained, smaller world. And yet it's a fascinating world and you could never get bored with it. You say that you wrote this book in search of optimism. Which a discovery or um, revelation do you find the most comforting that you found in the process of writing it? Gosh, I think I, uh, I ended the book with um, Star Car, I think, the Mesolithic site, and then it, and then it, the one in Yorkshire, and, and then it, it runs into, I think, flowing through the, the book, actually unintentionally, there, there's quite a lot of references to the cave art you know, the, the, you know, the animal paintings that we find in caves all over. I find the greatest comfort in trying to reconnect with a time before we were scientific. And, and I, I'm, in, I'm in awe and envy of that time that people had when they didn't make such a distinction between themselves and the, and the other animals in the world. And the way in which those painters 30 and 40,000 years ago painted the bison and the horse and the mammoth and those caves, uh, that, uh, that feeling that those people had thousands of years ago of being a part of uh, the cosmos. You know, John Muir, the Scottish uh, uh, conservationist who went out as a child to North America and became one of the fathers of the, of the National Parks movement in, in North America, you know, amongst other things, he said, whenever you try to pick one thing up on its own, you find it connected to everything else. And he really meant that in the context of, you know, natural things. You know, if you pick up a leaf, it's part of a much bigger story. Uh, and I think there was a time and a very long time when people appreciated and understood themselves as part of all of this, not separate from it. And must have been comforted. Our species was comforted by a thought like that for tens of thousands of years. And the other comforts that we have invented for ourselves in the last few hundred years or the last few decades are a flash in the pan compared to the sources of comfort that our species has had for thousands, if not millions of years. And we can make ourselves happy again just by being mindful of that ancient wisdom. This one you might need a little moment to think about, but if you if you had to nominate an ancient uh, discovery or an ancient site for everybody to seek out more information on or look into as one of the most revealing about human history. So not necessarily the blingiest or the most scientifically important, just the most um, moving, perhaps. What would you recommend? Well, for me, I think it would either be the Vedbeck mother and baby that we've mm -hmm. already talked about. Um or and I think I think I think I mentioned her in the same chapter, uh, the little Burka girl, the little Viking girl. Um, I I didn't physically see the Vedbeck mother and baby. That's always just been photographs to me. Um, 
But the 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 burka girl, I've seen her skeleton, I've seen her grave, and I've been on burka. I know exactly where she was found, and I I think about her often. You know, she's a little girl. She probably died when she was less than ten years old, and for various reasons, archaeologists think that she was unusual. They think possibly that her mother drank too much alcohol while she was pregnant with her and the, and the little girl was born with a, a syndrome, an identifiable syndrome. She would have looked a bit different. Um, and yet she was clearly valued because when she died, she was buried richly adorned in the, in the, in the, in the best plot in the graveyard, if you like. So she was of an important family maybe, but she was certainly treasured for the short time that she was alive. And I often think about her because of the all of the grief and the emotion and the humanity that was expressed in the way that her little body was treated in death. And so a little girl, it's, it's thought for various reasons that the dress that uh, that she would have been wearing in the grave was red. So, you know, so it's this idea of a little girl in, in a red dress flitting about almost fairy-like. And so some, sometimes I'll see something out of the corner of my eye when I'm out walking and it a flash of red, and I'll think about Burka Girl. And, and then I think, you know, I've made documentaries and written a book about Vikings. And we think about Vikings as being these great warriors with their great ships and their and their battle axes and their round shields and the horns and the howling and the and the terror. But for me, when someone says the word Viking, I think about a little girl in a red dress. She was a little Viking daughter. And that the fact that she did make that impression on me means the world to me that it's someone who was only here for a short time, only here for a handful of years, a thousand years ago. She is what I think of when I think about Vikings. So that, I think about, I think about Burka Girl more than anybody else. And finally, of course, it's a very personal take. Um, it's almost a personal search for your own wisdom. Um, I mean, you've been caught up in a few debates lately about cancel culture, freedom of speech. Do you think that you could take anything from the wisdom of the ancients um, that would apply to that? I often, long before this, in fact, it was, it was something I think my mum drew my attention to it when I was a little boy. Uh, but legend has it that um, King Solomon, King Solomon of the of the temple, uh, is said to have worn a ring on his finger that had etched into it the words, this too shall pass. And it was supposed to remind him that however great a king he might be, he was only, he was here today and gone tomorrow. And his kingdom was here today and gone tomorrow. And all of us are here today and gone tomorrow. And any problems that were surrounded by, this too shall pass. What would you say is the lesson that you have taken personally most from this? I think it's that. I think it's that our modern life, we've made it so complicated and stressful for ourselves. And we have increasingly come to serve machines rather than having machines to make our lives better. And I think we need to pull back, pause and reflect that for hundreds of thousands of years, we lived differently. And in in the past, when circumstances were so difficult and when lives were pain-ridden, threatened by war and disease and people were burying their children all around them, 
they still found it in their hearts to make expressions that have haunted our imaginations for thousands of years and that they could do that then in the unimaginably hard world that they inhabited should inspire us to be so much happier in our world and in our time. That was Neil Oliver. Wisdom of the Ancients, Life Lessons from the Distant Past is on sale now, published by Bantam Press. You can also read a version of this interview in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is available now and also includes articles on the world's first policewomen, medieval science and trailblazing black Britons. (laughs) 